You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, I'm Deep Tran, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic. And we're your token theater friends, two people of color who go to the theater and love it so much. We will even take a first date to the theater. <laughs> More to come. Because on this episode, we're talking about dating. How to date where you, when you go to four shows a week? How do you do that, Jose? You, I don't know. You're asking the person who never <laughs> dates, so I have no idea. Uh, and that's coming up at the end of the show. And today we are reviewing three things that are playing in New York City. What are we talking about? First up, we have merrily we roll along at Roundabout Theater. Do 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> then we have the trial of the Cadenceville Nine at Target Margin Theater at the Abram Center. And last, we have Good Friday at the Flea. For our special guest for today, we did an interview with Christine Haruna Lee, whose show Suicide Forest is currently running. And she talked about Asian American representation and language. But you can hear more about that in a little bit. And I want to say, Christine, if you listen to this episode, can you please let people know where you got your coat because a lot of people who saw the picture that i posted on instagram with your jacket from the day they were like where'd you get that coat so let us know thank you <laughs> we ask the serious questions here on token theater friends things that people want to know yeah speaking of fashionable bunches let's talk about the mod fashion in merrily we roll along go which was so fabulous Mary Lee is perhaps one of Stephen Sondheim's most controversial shows. Like, people either, like, flat out adore it or think it's, like, a piece of crap and wonder, like, what drugs he was doing in the 80s when he wrote it. <laughs> I happen to be among the group that love this uh, this show. And this production by Fiasco, who are known for, like, doing almost, like, bare-bones productions of everything and, like, slimming it down and narrowing it down to, like, its purest essence i would say are doing this a show that has so many issues and fiasco are doing it with just a cast of six it's mm -hmm. three male actors and three female actors and they do the entire merrily with just six people which is like absolutely mind-blowing the plot focuses on three best friends mary who's a writer who then becomes a critic franklin who's a very talented writer and composer who then becomes a very successful Hollywood producer and like a very successful theater star. And then we have Charlie, who's also a writer, and he started along with Franklin. But Charlie is more of the, uh, he's more of the Monique. He wants integrity. He doesn't care about the money. So when we first meet them, they are no longer friends, basically. But as the show goes back in time to two decades before when they first met, we see how they became friends and also the reasons why their friendships just couldn't endure anymore and there's like romantic subplots like people love people who don't love them back there's backstabbing there's hollywood parties there's a lot of fashion a lot of coke <laughs> yes there's also a lot of coke 
<laughs> Maybe Sondheim was doing a lot of coke while he wrote this, you know, being very inspired. Okay. So. I mean, who wasn't doing know, a lot right? of coke in the 80s? And if you know Fiasco, then you know what to expect in terms of visuals. We have what I what I thought about were uh, reveals, uh, drug race, when, like, <laughs> when Mary starts out in 1980. And as the show goes back in time to 25 years before, Mary just, like, is wearing, like, all the clothes, kind of like, what Joey does on that episode where he puts on all of Chandler's jackets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, she just, like, takes off, like, an onion, like a stylish onion. She takes off all the costumes to go back to young Mary. Oh, so, that was, like, my favorite part of the show. I love that, too. So it's it's a very inventive, a very DIY production in a way. But also the orchestrations were absolutely magnificent. And I think it uh, reveals things about the show that I had never even thought about before i i'm conflicted because the thing the thing is the problem with the show they remain problems with the show which is a problem on a story a story and a character level and i think like barring like a rewrite or, or it's not going to be solved but i think what they did really well was because you know if you know the lore around the show it was famously a flop on broadway closing after only 16 performances and people were really confused about the structure this whole like oh every scene is a year or two back before the scene preceding that so they're going back in time who are, who are these people and what i loved the, the way that fiasco did it was it was very clear, the scene transitions, that we were going back in time. We're in, we were in 1984, we're in 1978 now, and the way they did it was just so creative for every time that they went backwards. Like what Jose was citing, like the Mary transitional scene, all made me almost forget that the show has a lot of structural problems. What are your biggest like mm. uh, issues with the structure? I think... Uh, the show wants to be the show is billed as an ensemble piece between three friends but i think it focuses too much on franklin shepherd the composer and not enough on his friends especially on mary the one woman in the group and the one woman in the show who's not like a shrew that it like you're focusing on the least interesting and least likable character and so you're just thinking why do we care about this dude what happened to his friends? Can I please spend some more time with his friends? And this production doesn't solve that. It just... It does what it does very well. And I think the great thing about Fiasco is, like, they show you how you can do, like, these big, splashy Broadway musicals. Because the, the last one they did was Into the Woods. And if you know Into the Woods, there's a shit ton of people in there. And what they do is, like, they show you, you can do Into the Woods with six people. Yeah, my fa I think my favorite thing about this production was, um, cause I've seen a couple of productions of this show, and I, I, Ooh, wow. I guess because I love the musical so much, like I love, I love every production of it that I've seen, and but my favorite thing about this production is that Marley is known for being perhaps like one of Sondheim's saddest shows. Oh God, yes, it's so cynical. It's so heartbreaking, and. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's not a fun night out at the theater, I would say. It's, like, a very, like, introspective, like, go back home and, like, have a vodka kind of show. But Think my, about all the people who you're no longer friends with. Yes, and the reasons why you're no longer friends with them. And my favorite thing about this production was that uh, because of how DIY it is and how bare bones and how stripped down it is, 
and so inventive, it made me think that it would have been the kind of production that Mary, Franklin, and Charlie would have put on when they first met. Like, because mm-hmm. they do, like, uh, we see one of their early, like, reviews and, like, cabarets, and they're doing the exact same thing that Fiasco does with every show they do. Mm-hmm. And and that made me even sadder because, you know, it, it proves in a way that even though Franklin knows that money really matters in America and, well, in the world, the the show itself shows us that he's not right. Like, there's so much that you can do with limited resources mm-hmm. and just imagination. So that made the show like an extra layer of sad for me. What did you think, what did you think of the singing? I'm coping. There were you know the not all the actors were great singers. Yes. And some I would say at some point missed a note yes, and like went off key. But even that, I appreciated because it was, again, it was making me think about that, about how artists want to do something so badly that they don't care if it's polished or not. They just need mm-hmm. to get it out into the world. So I appreciated it a lot. Like it, at, at first I was like being snobbish. And I was like, why is, why is she not hitting the right note? <laughs> it's like, why is she not Bernadette Petersing it right now? The, yes. What we're talking about is like uh, Nade Goes By, which is like one of the most famous songs in the show. And you expect it to sound a certain way because that song stands on its own. And then when it it didn't quite deliver, which is unfortunate because I think that's like a, it's supposed to be heartbreaking what happened, the dissolution of a marriage. And it isn't. And the thing is, I don't know if it was heartbreaking in the other iterations, because I also think, oh, well, we just met this character, so why do we care? (laughs) You know? It's kind of like the last five years, you know? Like, why? It's like, why are we singing the the sad ballad right now? But by the time they do the uh, reprise, uh, when they first are getting married and all of that, and when they're like, I really don't want to spend another day without you, then it becomes really, really heartbreaking. Yes. And the, 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 the actor who, who sang the part at first, I think it was in the first, the first time she sings the song and it's like a little, like her voice is breaking, but then like the second time she sings it, she's so great. Like she's so, her pitch was perfect and like she hit all the right notes. So I totally think that this was her choice or the director's choice. And it's again, like we, we first hear this song that we know so well because everyone's recorded, not a day goes by. And we want this like lush, magnificent, like beautiful singing. And when we first hear it and her voice is breaking and it's not Bernadette or Liza or, you know, enter any like major diva who's recorded this song, then we're like, huh? Like, where's the pretty part? Mm-hmm. But then she, she does the pretty part when they go back in time. Yeah, I think I think this this is one of those shows where it made me it made me realize that like the reprise is strong the reprises are stronger than the original songs because the reprises come with context. Yes, but it's like also about I don't know, especially nowadays, because uh, we also should mention that the 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 actress who sings who plays Beth and who sings the song is an African American actress, mm-hmm. and it's the first time I've seen. A production where there, you know, where a non-white woman sings it, and that also, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know, we have thoughts on that kind of stuff, and that also, like, 
unearthed a lot of things for me about, you know, what an interracial marriage would have been like in the 70s and 60s and all of that. And even though it's not, you know, it's not... uh it's not uh, realism that we're going for because when we meet her parents, they're both white people, mm-hmm. so they're not, you know, they're they're not like necessarily like doing like a it's, commentary on race. Yeah, but by it's default, a situation. Yeah, yeah, but by default, like just having a black woman sing this song adds so much to it that uh, I I don't know I really loved it. And uh, no, it's so funny you mentioned that because the actor who plays Charles is like is an indian american actor right and so like it gave it gave another context of oh this white dude franklin shepherd is just like fucking shitting on his friends who are women and people of color good job (laughs) white dudes as always you're just gonna end up alone and that's how you bring merrily to 2019 (laughs) like i i also you know because the production is so so like smooth and so beautiful it's like so perfectly like it's so tight mm-hmm. it also like allowed me to hear to listen for the first time to a lot of cues that i've missed along the years as i've seen this production and this time around i really like laughed out loud i was probably like the an uber theater nerd because there's a song in the show and the quote is the line is there's only one thing wrong there's not a tune you can hum and then, yeah. And then, I, it, it, I, my mind immediately went to like 1984 when Lakage beat uh, Sunday in the Park at the Tonys, and then I think when when Jerry Herman I think showed up to collect his Tony for the music, he was like, "See, you can win for songs you can hum or something like that." And I was like, "I was like, well, Jerry, like Sondheim made a joke about it, like." three years before you even like thought about giving him some shade. So bye. <laughs> I think that's a good w- part way to end this discussion. Should we go back in time? So, yes, to- we should go back in time and do it all over again. <laughs> I think, I think if you love the show before this production will only cement how much you love it. I think it'll give you more that you didn't know that you needed from the show and if you're ambivalent about it like me you still may not like the plot of the show but you may like how well they did it let's know what you think did the time go by quickly or did you want that two hours of your life back did you want to go back in time let us know and merrily runs through april 19th 2019 at the Laura Pels Theater per roundabout and tickets go from $99 to 119 Though I think roundabout still does like the hip techs, like $25 yep. tickets for young people program under 30. So if you're under 30, you can buy for $25. Okay. Second show is the trial of the Cantonsville nine at the transport group. Uh, this, so if you've ever seen, Gats by Elevator Repair Service. This concept may sound familiar to you. It is people, it is actors, three Asian actors come into a theater and they find these court documents and they start reading verbatim the court transcripts. And the transcripts are from a trial in the 1970s of Vietnam War protesters who burned draft files using napalm. And it was nine people who did it, and it was their way of protesting the American involvement in the Vietnam War. 
And the way they did it is very interesting at the transport group. They used only three actors to play nine people, the nine plus other and judges and things like that. So this is one of those times where I have to put on different hats because anything about the Vietnam War gets really complicated for me. So I had to, so I can, I can critique it. I'll critique it from my point of view as like a theater critic and then from my point of view as like a Vietnam War refugee. So the, the theme of the play is that the America should not have gotten involved in the Vietnam War and that they were massacring innocent people and America should really rethink its involvement in the affairs of foreign governments, which is a fair crit- critique. Yeah, I mean, you're nodding your head. Jose, Jose's from the under, from Honduras. So we all know about American involvement in, out, in, you know, foreign countries and how, and how shitty it is for everybody involved, including the people on the ground. Okay. So stylistically, this play is actually really well done. Like, I loved what they did with the, space in Abrams Art Center. Like, we sat on the stage as it was happening. So it was in the round. And I've, I've never had that configuration done at that theater. And what, and I didn't have any trouble following it. Like, for some reason, there were nine people, but they did such a good job of, of designating which person was talking and their motivations. It was so creative and... It actually brought up some good points in terms of, you know, American foreign involvement and how there's so much, there's so many problems happening in America at the time, you know, with the civil rights movement, with the, with the equal rights movement, like why, why were resources and lies being placed for this tiny Asian country no one's ever heard of? Very fair critiques. Okay, I'll, I'll pause on that, and then, and Jose, you talk. But I want to hear more about about that, about the fact that they're having three, you know, Asian actors play white people. All and white people. <laughs> what did that mean to you? I really want to hear more about that. Okay. I can say what I, what I think they were trying to do, which was to decenter the narrative of the Vietnam War away from white people to Asian people, Asian Americans, Vietnamese people. Rightfully. Who, who, you know, oh shit, millions of us died and millions of Cambodians died too. And it made me more inclined to like the play than I would have, have otherwise. But did you, did you think that in a way, because I thought about that while I was sitting there watching the, the performance, uh, do you think that in a way this also, by you know, by having Asian actors like play this this white folks, do you think that in, in any way it was also kind of absolving white people? Oh, yeah. That, that, that's like part of my next question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but no, let me hear what you think of the play first. Because that's, you know, that's what, the, what this was the first time that I've seen this play. Like, it hasn't been done in New York in like over 30 years, I mm-hmm. think. And the Broadway production had 12 people. So going from 12 people to three is like mind blowing. Yeah. And really well done. But I, you know, but, 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 but. I don't know. It was like the, the, the cast is like magnificent. Like these three actors are doing incredible work. But there were moments when I was so uncomfortable, especially when they were like reenacting the court scenes mm-hmm. and they were doing both sides. And there were moments when I, it made me really uncomfortable to have, you know, a white character 
being channeled by an Asian actor, you know, defending the all the all the horrors that America brought to Vietnam. And in a way, I was like, sure, because these people are compared to Schindler's in some way, right? They saved almost 400 American soldiers from going to the war. I don't know. I was like, I want to hear about the millions of Vietnamese people who died. Like, I want to hear their stories, I guess. Like, yes. I, I want to hear, I want to see this Asian actors tell those stories rather than the point of view of the white people, even though this white people in particular were good white people, right? Uh, and debatable. <laughs> debatable. The thing, okay, yes, yes. Because this is when I'm going to put on my Vietnamese refugee hat. Because my problem with most Vietnam War narratives in America that have been told in America is it's very white-centered, and it's usually about how white people feel bad about it and how white people died. And it's and the conversation is usually around like, why are we wasting American lives, or like we or we should be protecting those poor Vietnamese people from getting killed by us. It, it's like a very paternalistic mentality instead of just letting Vietnamese people tell our own stories and talk about the complexities of that conflict, which were incredibly complex. Not very many Americans know that there's actually two sides that were fighting and Vietnamese people were fighting each other and the people that, you know, these white people in Kentisville 9 were trying to save were also killing my people <laughs> in Vietnam. So it's all of those things. But the thing is, like, once Americans get their grips on it, like, they simplify it. And in simplifying it, like, they take the microphone from the marginalized and focus it on themselves. Mm -hmm. It would be like the equivalent of having, like, little, you know, Latin ex children do a play about the horrors of that this government is doing down in the south border, like, about the wall. Like, it would be like having Mexican play and Central ICE American children. Yes. <laughs> it, would be, it, would be it would be that. And also, like, again, this is not about the work of the actress because they're all so wonderful. Mm -hmm. But even when we get that ending where, like, they go back into heaven or something like that, or yeah. uh, I don't know. Oh, the, what, is that, are they dead? And I would have loved that at, if at the end of the show, the characters would have just, like, settled this bullshit on fire and be like, now we're going to tell our story. Yes. I, I'm, this play was written in the 70s, so of course it was what it is, but I would have liked more criticisms of like this mentality of America used to be great, and we didn't used to kill four-year-old children. Sure, Jan. Yeah, and I'm like, come on. You just enslaved them, you know? It doesn't make it any better. But it's like, it's using the Vietnam War to contrast with like how we, quote-unquote, used to be. How we're like, quote-unquote, better than that. I'm like, no! America was never great. We're not going to make it great again by not being in this conflict. We're going to make it great again by understanding like the cultures and the people of who we're trying to, you know, interact with. And of letting them have a voice. I, I, I don't know. If the Russian butts get hold of this episode they're gonna destroy us <laughs> exactly <laughs> but otherwise it's very stylishly done yeah and the yeah. acting is really really wonderful. yeah and the design like i i really loved the um the sound like it was all i love a good all enveloping sound design with the with the theater just shakes yeah and also like we have so many courtroom dramas taking place right yes. now and i wonder if that's like the new thing that we're going to be seeing everyone everything set in a court I think so. Though, if we're going to compare courtroom dramas, I think uh, the courtroom was better. Oh, yeah, because To Kill a Mockingbird, 
Mm, yeah. No. Anyway. Okay, we're not going to talk about that because only one of us got into To Kill a Mockingbird. Thanks, Scott Rodin, for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the Trial of the Kid in Spill 9 uh, closes on the 23rd. So if you want to go see it, you have a couple days and tickets are $60. Uh, the Tribe of the Cantusville 9 was written by Daniel Berrigan. Yes. And the, the final show we're going to be talking about today was a literal mindfuck for me, which rarely ever happens. <laughs> it is is Good Friday by Christiana Ray Cologne. It is currently running at the Flea Theater. And, you, you know, oh, Jose and I go see a lot of theater. And at this point, like, we're pretty good at um, being able to predict what happens most of the time, when, especially on, like, a, in a hyper-realistic play. It takes place in a classroom full, full of college-aged women, and then, a shoot, and then there's a shooter on the loose, and you think it's going to be a drama about, you know, the tense, how tense they feel, and how they're going to find sisterhood during all this and all that stuff. And it does, and it turns... And I kind of don't want to give it away because it was so good when I realized, like, this is where we were going to go. Yeah, don't give it away. Well, if that was what surprised you, let me tell you. I saw this on Valentine's Day. <laughs> and I had not read the plot synopsis. So there I go and... I sit and I see they have like a little like Ibsen thing and I see all these women in college. I was getting ready with my glass of red wine for a good old like Mona Lisa smile kind of drama where we see all these women talk about like literature. <laughs> so when the guns showed up, I was like, okay. So how do we talk about this without ruining the show for all of you? Let's just talk about... Okay, well, let's, we can let's we talk about the themes. Yes, because it's like the okay, one of the big questions that gets touched on touched on in the show is um, why are male shooters why are, why are mass shooters usually men and what happens when women arm themselves? And the thing is, I have not thought of that myself because I've always assumed that, of course, men are inherently violent. So of course, they're going to start shooting people. So this question, this play brought up questions of, like, are women capable of this kind of violence? And but or what does nonviolent resistance against the patriarchy look like? And is that even possible? And while we wait for that to happen, like, how many more women are going to be assaulted on college campuses? And what I love is like it just brought up all the questions and like it didn't leave you with any good answers. And the thing is, I kind of felt I, I saw all sides. I was like, yes, yes, let's go smash some things. I am so angry. But is that the answer? I don't know. So I think that that's the ingenious part of the play. Like you felt viscerally for both sides, and it was generally shocking. Where what? the way the turns that it takes yeah i guess it also along those lines it also you know there are I, this is not a show where you, anyone should say good people bad people but because yeah. that doesn't exist no. really but this is a show where the nature i would say of who we are and especially the nature of gender 
comes to the surface in like a really surprising way. Like I had never seen this done this way um, in a play where it's like, because you also have women of different races, not only mm-hmm. white women defending the oh, patriarchy. It's, it's so intersectional. Yeah. And women defending men's rights to have an education and a quote unquote future regardless of what they've done to women. And when you see a character that you are not necessarily expecting to defend a man for doing something really fucking atrocious, you're like, huh? (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I was very glad that I had my red wine with me for that one. I'll say that. So is this a show you should take your date to or not? (laughs) If you don't want to see them again, no. Yeah, yeah. I think it would make for like really wonderful conversation, but it was also a show that I I left very angry. I think that's good. I... and the thing is, what do you think we do with that I have the anger, though? I don't know. Exactly. I had chocolate after I saw it. And though, what, one thing I will say about the play is, like, yeah, it's so diverse, and there's so many different kinds of women that I kind of wish, like, they were all flushed. I feel like they're, they're all archetypes. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many of them, and w- the play was only 75 minutes, and we never really got to spend a lot of time delving into who each of these women are and what motivated them. And so the first half of the play, actually, I kind of lost my patience with a lot of the characters because they were just so high-pitched and emotional. Like the Christian character. Yeah, Christian character, the... Um, the char- uh, the Oh, God, what was her name? The one, the one who was, like, calling everyone bitch. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, like the there's a Christian character. There is like a, a free sexuality kind of character who is very loud and verbose. And so I felt like the play in, in the beginning kind of traded in those stereo stereotypes in order to establish the scene. And then uh, we didn't quite discover more about these. I don't think I discovered more about the women as it progressed. As people know. No. Just as like social experiments, I exactly. Would say. It was like kind of you put a bunch of, you know, it's kind of it's kind of like Lord of the Flies. Do you really know who any of them boys are in Lord of the Flies? Not really. But that's a great comparison because I'm excited that we have a an all female Lord of the Flies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, but I think the play could have been longer just to really delve into, like, to actually be character studies. Rather than just tropes. Yeah. I, I The last thing that I want to say about the show is that I usually complain about endings. And I Ooh. felt that the ending for this show was so... It was it was what I wish Network on Broadway would have given me. That it would have mm-hmm. made a point And it would have been like getting stabbed. But also getting... Being enlightened at the same time. So congratulations to the playwright and the director. Because this was really great yeah oh I, and all the kudos to all of the the actors i can't single out any one of them because they're just it's an ensemble piece and they're all just so amazing so thank you ladies for your bravery yes um, good friday runs until march 18th and tickets are 17 to 32 dollars which is well worth your money it's gonna fuck you up Especially if you're a woman on your period. And then you're real. Whoa. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, Jesus. Bring some wine, ladies. Yeah. Treat yourself afterwards. 
for our next part of the show, we have writer slash actor Christine Haruna Lee, whose show Suicide Forest is currently running at the Bushwick Star, and it just got extended through March 23rd. And it is set in Japan, and there's some fucked up shit that goes down. Let's let's go to Christine's interview. Where she, where she will tell you more about it. So for the people who uh, maybe won't get to see the Suicide Forest production in New York, but fingers crossed we'll get to see it at some point, what is Suicide Forest? Um, I describe Suicide Forest as a bilingual nightmare play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me unpack that. Yes. Um, there's so much. Yeah, it's it's really a, a jam-packed play um, on so many levels. But uh, it was originally inspired by Audrey and Kennedy's Funny House of a Negro. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does this thing with that play where she's like using her own dark psychic space as like the landscape of the play. Mm-hmm. And I was so struck by that. And so Suicide Forest was my attempt of creating this, like, Japanese-American identity play that's tapping into, like, a really severely dark psychic space in me. Um, the story follows uh, the salaryman, which is a Japanese businessman, uh, as well as this uh, high school girl named Azusa, and the two of them are in this nightmare space, which is, like, in, I think I was like inside me and they're just like drowning, <laughs> drowning in this space that's like all about shame and self-erasure, self-hatred and loathing, uh, uh, just really the dark aspects of Japanese society, um, this shame-based society. Uh, um, and then part two of the play takes place in the actual forest. And in the forest, there is this uh, god or demon character named Mad Mad that's played by my actual mother. And uh, and I'll be playing Azusa. And um, this, char- this uh, demon god character is a shinigami, which in Japanese means this uh, god who ushers people towards their death. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, oh, and also there's four really cute goats, too. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, but the play takes kind of a sharp turn there towards the end when Azusa and Mad Men meet, and it becomes this... Uh, mother-daughter reconciliation or reconciling with the presence of death and the presence of intergenerational pain and uh, and seeing if it's possible, despite the culture and language barrier, to achieve some kind of rebirth <laughs> together. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what was the conversation like when you first talked to your mom about being part of this project? Because your mom's also a performer. Yeah, yeah. So she um, started dancing buto out of the blue. Uh, buto is like in this experimental Japanese dance form where uh, the performers like paint their bodies head to toe in all white. And mm-hmm. they look very ghostly and creepy. Um, and she found buto seven years ago out of the blue uh, and has been really active in uh, the Buteau scene in Seattle, and I've been watching her kind of evolve in that and 
So performance kind of became this language <laughs> that we all of a sudden shared. Um, so when I approached her, you know, in my very, like, elementary Japanese, I'm like, hey, <laughs> will you be in this show with me? Aya and I, Aya, uh, who directs Suicide Forest, and I talked about it, and we would love to have you in it. And she was like, so game. <laughs> so, so, so down. Wow. But how's it been affecting your relationship? Mm, I think, like, there's there was an assumption on my part that we could approach this, like, inside of this piece, we could be, like, totally equal and equitable with each other and, like, perfect. But, it, you know, we're completely not, and it's, like, really mother-daughter relationship comes first. Mm. And whenever, or, like, we'll start as artists, and then, like, when things get hard, we devolve back into mother-daughter dynamics. Mm. So... I mean, it's been really nice to have Aya and, like, this whole Japanese, Japanese heritage, like, actors and team holding that space with us. I was so uh, excited and several other emotions uh, along with that when I first read that Adrian Kennedy's work had inspired this play Mm -hmm. because I think that one of the biggest tricks and one of the biggest lies that, you know, white people try to impose on people of color is the notion that you can only look up to the people who look like you. Mm. And that's why people of color don't get anything done anywhere in this country because, you know, everyone in positions of power and everyone who they see who is creating is white. Mm. So the fact that you were inspired by one of the great African-American playwrights who doesn't get her work produced as often as she should. I was just so thrilled with that because you're like debunking that white people miss. That's not true. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I would really love to have you like dig into that, you know, like, did you, when you first were inspired by, by Adrian's work, did any part of you go like, Maybe I should, you know, like, wait and find someone, a playwright, who has maybe Japanese heritage, and maybe try to explore that. Or why was it that Adrian's take on race in America was the thing that just, like, sparked the play for you? Yeah, no, I don't think it could have been any other way. Like, her ability to cut through the bullshit and put that, like, nightmare part of herself, um, just push that forward, was so gutsy and, like, really spoke to my aesthetic, Mm. I guess, as an artist or as a writer. Um, I mean, in my life, like, in the past five years, I would say I've been finding really deep mentorship with black women in my life and that's I don't know there's like there is an opening there it's not closed it's not um and it's hard I think like as an Asian Asian American woman um politics play a different role it looks and feels differently in an Asian and Asian American communities so 
when I got connected to uh, folks uh, at Bax, for example, my cohort was with Nigel Whitson and Tanisha Christie, and those two have just been, I mean, blowing open my understanding of how I can um, really incorporate uh, politics and my own identity in a radical, radical way in my work. So the play is in Japan, and it's about, and there's Japanese language in it. And I was so surprised when you told me, like, you don't speak very much Japanese. And so what was part of the impulse for you to really excavate something that you, you didn't grow up with, yeah, that you yeah. grew up here? Yeah, I mean, I will say my mom pretty much only speaks Japanese, so I do have to have some sense of Japanese in order to communicate anything with her, but yeah, my like writing level uh, is shit. <laughs> <laughs> was like elementary school uh, or maybe like middle school um, but uh, the desire to bring Japanese language into the play really was inspired by my growing and blossoming relationship with Aya um, she I mean it was really after meeting her and she was like well, first, she always says, when I first read this script, it was so disgusting. I was so, like, she was really disgusted by the content of the play, but was so drawn to it because she also, we share similar history and relationship to Japan and the U.S. So, um, so she really felt connected with the themes of the play. Uh, and then... Uh, in talking with her, uh, we were going to do this reading at the star, and she suggested, why not bring in a group of actors who are Japanese, Japanese heritage, uh, instead of opting for Asian American with uh, folks with like fluency in English. Mm-hmm. And it was after inviting that initial team to the play that it really like took a turn there we were so um it's just inspired by the energy that uh, a Japanese heritage cast could bring to this piece and then it really became about like how can the play support these Japanese actors uh and then that's when we started bringing more and more Japanese into it because there's something, when English is your second language, there's such a struggle to convey, to speak English and that struggle that uh, Japanese heritage performers come up against in speaking English text is so present and uh, to offer this like relief of being able to speak your native language uh, felt really important, so the play is playing <laughs> with that. Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm really grateful that your play is bringing to the surface, you know, something like suicide, which in America is still very much taboo. And I love that in the play you get the sense that, you know, in Japanese culture, suicide, as the play says, uh, suicide is a kind of uh, way to live the world with an amount of honor. 
And in America, when someone kills themselves, it's a source of shame. And I just wondered, you know, what, uh, can you just share a little bit about that? And like, yeah, totally. It's, it's so, you know, it's, it's, I even got goosebumps because it's, it's so, it's so different than what, what we see in American culture. And like, you know, like if someone kills themselves, everyone's just like gossiping and like, just like, what they making, do yeah. I mean, that's, that exists in Japanese culture as well, for sure. Um, I think in finding this forest, uh, Jukai or Aokigahara, which is at the base of Mount Fuji, when I found that forest, I felt like a deep connection and like serenity to that place, even though it's so, um, carries like such sad and dark energy. Um, and I think it's because like this act of suicide, uh, the honor that's connected with it is like deeply Japanese. And, um, and for me, that's played out as like a daily self erasure or invisibilizing, um, here in the States as a Japanese, Taiwanese, American, human um and in this play i think i wanted to go as far into the stereotypes of what american culture might <laughs> consider you know japan's relationship to suicide is like go so far in that no one that oh like that it just what am I trying to say? Like, when you go so far into the stereotype that you just can't, you have to make it your own. <laughs> like, it's a kind of re... Yeah. Reclaiming. Yeah, claiming. Yes, that's it. Yeah, just like, there are just so many fucking Japanese stereotypes. Um, and I wanted to go deep, deep, deep into it, reclaim it, and come out of the forest, the forest that everyone talks about as myself. <laughs> so, yeah. So for those who can't see the play, what's a Japanese stereotype that you hate that you wish more people knew wasn't true? Mm, I mean, just the stereotype of like the obedient, docile, serving Japanese or Asian woman is like so vile <laughs> to me. It's vile because I I adhered to it for so long to fit in. And then now I am working so hard to like bust out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the play, uh, there's a line that's like, uh, I read online that dating Asian women is a white nationalist rite of passage. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is so messed up. And it's, you a, know? And it's a thing that actually happened. It is a Richard thing. Spencer had an Asian girlfriend. It's a thing. <laughs> it's so vile to me that my, me, my body, myself could be wrapped up in that and so yeah the play feels like just <laughs> acknowledging it and then like tear it all down yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Strict>. <laughs> 
Uh, so let's uh, send us home. Tell us when and where people can see the play in New York. And also plot the play because it's coming out soon, right? Yes. When's, when's it being published? Oh, the play is being published uh, same time as when the play will open and will be selling the book that was published by 53rd State Press uh, at, the, at the theater. You can also get it online. But the show itself, Suicide Forest, is at Bushwick Star uh, in association with Mai Theater. And uh, it opens February 27th, and uh, it will... Uh, I think I can say this. I just got an email today that we're going to extend. So Congratulations. March 23rd will be wow. closing. Haven't even opened yet. Already extended. <laughs> the dream. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank, Thank you guys so much. And if you're in New York, go see the play. And if you're not in New York, buy the Bye. play. Get a hard copy or get it. And a digital copy for a kid on your iPad. So thank you again, Christine. Congratulations. Thank you. So Jose, do you date? Barely. Is it because the theater is your date? No, it's time. because I'm tired. It's <laughs> exhausting. But funnily enough, I should have said merrily. But funnily, merrily, yeah. yeah. Funnily, like funnily enough, like um, I took a date to see merrily. So, what did he think? Well, it was the first time that we were going to the theater together. Like he, he doesn't work in theater because I would never date someone who works in theater. So to all my secret admirers out there. <laughs> I am sorry. No, I'm kidding. You can still send me flowers and chocolate. Anyway. He'll still take you to the theater, probably, if you're a person of color. Yes, yes. But uh, for some, you know, like, I go to the theater every night. He doesn't go to the theater. He works. It's kind of like, it's very, like, hitting, like, a shop around the corner without the, without that we don't like each other part kind of thing where we have, like, different, I don't know, like, very, very, very different, like, lives. So mm-hmm. we don't, like, clash or intersect sounds lovelier than Clash mm-hmm. that way. So I took this guy to Merrily, and it was his first Sondheim, which... Ever? Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't really go to the theater. Yeah, I know, right? Not I feel like non-theater people don't really know who Sondheim is. Mm, yeah, and... yeah, and, like, and I took my roommate. She was like, who is who wrote this? I'm like, oh, God. But it was like that kind of thing where like we go to Merrily and like it's Sondheim and it's a show that I really love. So it's like, it's kind of like a test in a way. And I didn't think mm-hmm. about it until we were sitting there. And I was like, if he doesn't like Merrily, this is not going, like we are not going to roll along. <laughs> we're going to go back in time and pretend we never dated. Ever. But he, he did love it. And, you know, we, we were talking earlier about that, about when's the time to bring a date to the theater and what shows do we want to bring our dates mm-hmm. to the theater like we both agree that we not we would not bring a date to good friday unless we were already married to them right yeah or unless you're trying to give them a unless you're trying to test how feminist they are mm-hmm. because if you bring a date to good friday and then he's like these bitches be crazy <laughs> then burn him like the cadenceville nine did to those trap records <laughs> oh my god <laughs> No, but it's interesting. Like, I feel like as people go to the theater, we 
and always we're always looking for you know a quote unquote date, but I would never take a date to the th- an actual person I'm dating to the theater unless. Unless you know, it's. I feel like it's like it's an extension of who I am at this point. And like, if you don't like this thing that I do, then I don't know what we're gonna. I don't know what I'm gonna do with you. Or someone who would leave during intermission, like one of my dates did once. What he mm-hmm. left without you? He was like, I can't take this show anymore, and he left during intermission. Yeah, and one of the best theater related anecdotes I've heard theater slash dating related anecdotes I've heard recently was. In Michelle Obama's memoir, she talked about how the first date she went with with Barack Obama was to Les Mis. And at intermission, they're both like, you think this sucks, right? And, and they just left and went to dinner instead, which well, I found romantic. so romantic. It's like... I mean, since theater is such an important part of my life, I've also done some sacrifices for theater. Like, I took this guy... I've seen, I, I've seen School of Rock way more times than I would have liked to. Because I knew someone who was really into it. So we went to School of Rock after I was like, I've seen School of Rock. I don't need more School of Rock, which is like a fun show, I would say. But uh, I went back to School of Rock. And I've also had like some really disastrous dates at the theater. Like on my first date with this guy, we went to Marvin's room. (laughs) And we were just, you know, like sitting through Marvin's room during intermission and if you don't know, Marvin's Room is about uh, a woman who has cancer and is most likely dying. And during intermission for Marvin's Room, he t- turned to me and said, remember the reason why I was so reluctant to come out tonight? And I was like, yeah, what was that all about? And he said, well, I have to wake up tomorrow morning because I'm having a cancerous tumor removed from me. And I was like, okay. Maybe a musical would have been a better choice. Well, at least you're still dating, right? Not that person. I never oh, saw not him that again. Oh, shit. Yeah. I don't even know where he is. I hope he's alive. My last boyfriend, like one of the things I realized about that I kind of liked about him was like how he was kind of up for anything. And if if you're someone like us who just goes to a lot of really different things, like you want to be able to take someone who maybe who's like open-minded and maybe up for it. Like I took it like... Oh my god! I took him to like something like Rachel Chapkin directed, and it was like this experimental classic, which is like on the on paper probably not something you want to take a non theater literate person to. But I took him anyway, and he's like, "Well, that was kind of weird, but I like the costumes." I'm just like, "Yes, you know, you take you know how to make lemonade from this experience." <laughs> Oh, but yeah, that also reminds me of the upside to all of that, which is a lot of people usually, and probably they say the same to you, like, they're like, oh, whoever's dating is probably so lucky because they go to go to the theater all the time. (laughs) Oh, they don't say that? Well, people say that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, they say that. And I'm like, no, they don't want to, Oh, yeah, they don't want to. Because, like, a couple years ago, I was, like, kind of going out with someone. And in the same week, we went to... um, what was that Kevin Klein show? Present Laughter on Broadway. Okay. And then the next day we went to see A Doll's House Part Dang. Two. So that's a lot of dates. And he, yeah, and he so he got to see the two future Tony winning Best Actor and Best Actress in a play in two days. And did he appreciate it? The Probably third not. day, he said, "This I don't think this is going anywhere because you take me to too many Broadway shows." 
What is wrong with him? Who knows? And also, did he not know who you... Did he not read the profile? Was he... Was it like... It's like you knew it going in that that was going to happen. But the, and who complains about going to too many Broadway shows? The worst part is that he loved both shows, but he just thought that it was too much, that he couldn't go to the theater that often. And when I was like, well, first of all, we're not dating officially. Second, we're not married, obviously. And third, you don't have to come to everything I invite you to. I was just trying to be nice. So also to this person, wherever he is, may he be happy or whatever. Yeah. Maybe he only wanted to see those two shows, and you took him, and he and then he was it. like, "Mission accomplished! I don't need to see this person anymore." Well, if so, hats <clears> off, <throat> sir. Though, please do not, critics do not use that as an excuse to don't go on Craigslist and use that as an, as an excuse to find dates. On Craigslist, that's this creepy. is not 2001. <laughs> now, that, that was like a thing that actually happened. Like some theater critic, you know, because fun fact, everyone, uh, theater press, get we get two t- free tickets to every show that we see for the most part, unless it's Soho Rep. But we love you. It's We love you, Soho Rep. It's completely fine. Uh, so we get two tickets, and there was one theater critic. I don't, know, I don't think he was in New York, but he would post on Craigslist that he had extra tickets, and if anyone, anyone wanted to buy it off of him... That's just wrong. That is very wrong. Yeah, don't sell that stuff. Yeah, don't sell that stuff, and don't use it as an excuse to troll for men. Or tr- troll for, you know, people. Whatever you like. Pe- pe- yeah. Troll for dates. Be classy. Yes. Keep it classy. Yes. Or bring Though, a person of color because they mm-hmm. want to go to the theater. Though I gotta say, there's certain shows that I, I I saw with significant others, and seeing it with them, it kind of ruined my memory of that show because we're not no longer together. Oh no! What show did it ruin for you? Um, Into the Woods at Shakespeare in the Park. So this person deserves to die. Yeah, Set and Natasha fire. Pierre. <gasps> they oh, <laughs> and they're good shows. Those are good shows. But I saw them with the ex boyfriends. Now I think of the show. I think of the ex boyfriend. Who who who? When I think of the ex boyfriend, it makes me really sad. So thanks for nothing. Oh no, that's ex boyfriend. Have someone ruin like boring like exactly Arthur Miller and like O'Neill <laughs> revivals for you, not for Twelfth Night and yeah. So be careful who comment. you take to these musicals that you love, because if you, if you're not together anymore. That memory will be compromised. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, that is our show for today. Thank you all for listening. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get podcasts. And if you have thoughts on anything we saw today, or if you have thoughts on things that we should cover, you can email us at tokentheaterfriends at gmail.com. And we're also on the Twitter um, is there anything else that you want to say to the people? Go date people and have fun at the theater. Yes. Theater is more fun when you take a friend. Preferably if it's a date. <laughs> no, that's not your friend. You should, you should not be dating your friends. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>